0: Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast and take three of Mage the Roundtable part one. (laughs) Uh, So I think I was saying as we were going off the air last time in footage that you will not hear that I think discordant gafflings have got into our network. I blame the Weaver. Or the technocracy, or some meddling marauder, perhaps, getting into our Zencaster recording. Because, damn it, they do not want us to record this around table. There are clearly revelations that will be made here, not to put pressure on my guests, that will well, upset the balance of things between traditions and technocracy because we have had someone coming up with errors as we tried to start that just stopped the recording entirely. We've had someone who's lost all audio from everyone else. And now on take three, well, let's see what can go wrong because if something can, I'm sure it will. Otherwise, yes, this is the Onyx Pathcast, and we are here to talk about Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition, mostly because in the month of February, for one thing, we've got the Mage Law of Traditions Kickstarter ongoing, uh, which has, at time of recording, already surpassed 300% funding, and we've already got over 1,000 backers, so we are very happy at Onyx Path but also because February is World of Darkness month for Onyx Path Publishing, which, if you were keeping up with our sales announcements, means that because it's our 10th anniversary at Onyx Path, we are reducing the cost of various books, core books included, to 10% of their regular cost. That's 90% off their regular cost. I can do maths, and that means you can pick up games you may not have already done, so uh for a fraction of the cost we did it with dystopia rising evolution in january we'll be doing it for world of darkness in february so do check the blog theonyxpath.com every week to see which book will be on sale because those sales will last about a week at maximum before we transfer over to another game so i'm just getting that in now so that people are aware and hoping that we don't lose this valuable piece of recording in the when when this screws up so before it screws up let's talk about the guests who are so patiently waiting in our green room muted we have with us today Hiromi Kota Steffi Devan and Chris Allen. And these freelancers are all incredibly talented individuals that I have had the great pleasure of working with on several projects now. And most importantly, for the purposes of this recording, they have all contributed to Mage the Ascension books of various forms and stripes. And so we will be talking about those. We will also be veering onto other subjects, I've no doubt, because there hasn't been an Onyx Pathcast yet where we've stuck to the topic. And I hope, and I'm pretty sure, this is going to be both informative and entertaining for you, the listeners. If you're into Mage the Ascension or you're just interested in Mage the Ascension, there will be something you can find here that will please you orally, as in, in the ear. So, with that said, I'm going to go to my first guest, and we're going to round table this, so occasionally we'll talk over each other, but I'm going to go to my first guest, and one on one who has been afflicted with technocratic plague in the form of Steffi Devan. Steffi, it is lovely to have you here with me today.
1: Hi, I'm the glitch in your perception of reality, Steffi. <laughs> I'm I'm very happy to be here and to talk about uh, Mage and Lore of the Traditions and specifically about Forbidden and Forgotten Orders, which is a stretch goal that I'm developing about the Disparate Alliance, which is a bunch of people who don't get along, but they have to work together anyway, so familiar to not this specific group, but in your life, I'm sure you've encountered it. Um, I'm also developing uh, Legend Lore, which is a portal fantasy in which you yourself travel to a d and type fantasy world and have amazing adventures. Um, I'm also developing Whispers in Darkness for Xion, uh, which is um, Cthulhu without the bullshit that it historically comes with. And I also freelance for other companies like Gala Knight Games and Angry Hamster Publishing, and I'm developing uh, an adventure path for the latter, for which Fated Soul Souls, which is a game about uh, people who sell their soul to a demon for power, and then realise that was a really bad idea.
0: So, Steffi, I mean, before we get onto the mage stuff, because obviously we've got other guests to introduce as well. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did we start on the exact same book uh, with Onyx Path? I know that uh, our first vampire project was the same book, wasn't it?
1: Um, no, I think. I think I started, like, one book earlier on, on the Dark Ages call. No, it was another one. Um,
0: were you on Prometheus? Was, was it Promethean? I was on Prometheus.
1: Prometheus. Prometheus. Uh, ah, yeah. I was
0: on yeah. Prometheus, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was it, because you were on Prometheus and I was on Sothec's Sons for Mummy, and then we were both yeah. on uh, True Black Hand.
1: Yep, and then we kept running into each other on vampire books.
0: Yes, kept crossing paths, dueling yes. with rapiers, and then parting ways.
1: Yes, Never. exactly.
0: No, no, victor confirmed. So
1: exactly.
0: Yeah, like Harvey Keitel and David Carradine, we will meet again on the battlefield.
1: I definitely uh, we'll... hope so. <laughs>
0: uh, that that's a reference, by the way, to a movie called The Duelists. Listeners, if you haven't watched it, it isn't that great, but it has some wonderful scenes, all lit with natural lighting. See. I'm, I'm perfect for tangents, and this is why not having Dixie and Eddie here today is ideal, because they can't admonish me. My guests might, but, you know, they, they're only guests. They won't be here in the next episode, so I can live with that. Now, other than Steffi, I am also joined by Chris Allen. Hello, Chris.
2: Hello, hello. I hope you can all hear me. I am the early obstacle to this uh, call happening with my glitches and problems that I inflicted on the round table. Uh, but uh, here we are now. Uh, yes, I'm Chris. I developed the Victorian uh, Mage for Mage of the Ascension 20th edition, uh, which was kickstarted last year on Indiegogo successfully. Uh, I've worked on and developed quite a few other bits and pieces for Onyx Path and other companies. Uh, currently developing for Aberrant. Uh, written recently on a number of books for E.ON. Uh, trying to continue E.ON that have come out, like Prometheus Unbound. Uh, and a few other games with other companies are in the works as well. Um, yeah, so that's, that's me.
0: And, yeah, I'm just... I know, I'm not trying to do a big memory lane thing, but, Chris, <laughs> what was the first book we worked on together? Oh
2: um i'm not sure because my first book for onyx path specifically was uh will for the forsaken second edition yeah um but after that i started to spread out into all manner of other things it might have been shunned by the moon actually
0: it could have been uh, i mean that was a fairly heavy project by the end of it and i remember you yeah. being i mean i think you were probably on were you on Dark Eras? Because... Yes,
2: yes, that's right. I was on Dark Eras and Dark Eras 2 as well. Yeah. And quite a few yeah. other books, but I don't think other ones that
0: you were on. So No, at least we didn't work closely on those. Um, no. Well, we did on Dark Eras 2 because you were working yes. on some of the chapters I developed. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, moderately closely. Um, close enough that uh, in this era of pandemic we wouldn't be at risk of you know infecting <laughs> each other. But, um, so distant too. But yeah, Shun by the Moon sticks in my mind is the one where we really I guess kind of got to know how each other worked Mm. Uh, and yeah we slogged through the trenches of Werewolf the Forsaken and it's myriad of antagonists but we aren't just here to talk about Werewolf, Uh, in fact we're not here to talk about Werewolf at all (laughs) we're here to talk about Mage the Ascension which we will be getting onto very shortly and my third guest not to be outdone, and in fact, not, in fact, not to be done at all by the various technological mishaps. So far, this is the only person who hasn't had any issues. Hiromi Kota. Hello, Hiromi. Now, if you can't unmute oh, yourself, is. I'll thank God for that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, hi, uh, I'm Hiro Kota. Uh, I'm the line developer for uh, Scion. Um I was digging in my credits recent, like just now, because I was muted for a bit and had the chance to dig around and go, uh, okay, so what was the first thing that I worked uh, with Matthew on, and what what have I done for Onyx Path? And it turns out that I'm either currently on or have been on uh, thirty different books for Onyx Path, uh, eleven for Mage, seven for Scion, and then you know. <sighs> more for other things and I didn't think it was that fucking many but uh, it is <laughs> uh, apparently the first thing uh, that I worked with uh, Matthew on was uh, Dark Errors 2 uh,
0: although I don't think we saw much of each other on that uh, I, I'm trying to think I don't think you were on any of my chaps for Dark Errors 2 were you um, no no but yes that was definitely Technocracy Reloaded and and of course then we have the they came from's mm-hmm. mm.
3: I uh currently developing although most of the most of the work is done at this point, uh uh They came from Beyond the Grave, Tales of Depravity. Mm. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. They came from beyond the grave, tales of depravity.
0: And there are some depraved tales in there. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about them a little in this episode. You never know uh we we certainly had some challenges developing that book not because of quality (laughs) of writing but because uh, hitting the tone of they came from is always the most challenging part of working on they came from Uh, especially beyond the grave i think because it's the one that's the least overtly comedic uh and farcical and yet you still need to add that possibility of comedy in there So, uh, yeah, it's been a joy to work with Hiromi on those books. And also, uh, what have you recently been developing for Mage the Ascension? Uh, I've recently been working or
3: developing uh, Victorian Mage uh, Bizarre Tales and Unusual Characters and uh, Victorian Mage Weird Wonders and Revolutionary Magic. Uh, Both of those went to editing... uh, Either last week or this week, depending on which one we're talking about, Uh, I think Bizarre Tales went to editing on Friday, and then Weird Wonders went on Monday. Yeah. Uh, So that's quite recent.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, by all means, uh, Hiromi and... well, In fact, all, all three of you can hate me for the naming conventions that we've used for mage books in the last year or so because it is sometimes difficult to remember the order of these things. And when I'm pitching them, initially, these weird wonders and you know, revolutionary magic and forgotten and forbidden and things like that. Trying to get them all in the right order and remember them can sometimes be a challenge, but that's because when I come up with these things and pitch them to paradox, I don't necessarily think this is the title we will end up with. <laughs> and then, inevitably, it is. So we kind of get stuck with it. But you know, I think it I think it's colourful, isn't it? I like the sound of revolutionary magic.
3: I like the titles. I mean, I'm sure that uh, whoever has to uh, typeset them is going to be upset (laughs) with you. But, like, I'm fine with it. I I don't have to fit them on the cover or in columns.
0: (laughs) Yeah, how are they going to fit Weird Wonders and Revolutionary Magic on a front cover that... I hadn't even considered that. Whoops, okay. Well, let's move on. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, so so opening up to everybody, we're a round table here, so I'm not going to go one by one. Um, we are, of course, here to speak about Mage of the Ascension primarily, and I guess the first thing to to ask, whoever wants to dive in first, is isn't going to be the obvious. I'm not going to ask, how did you get into Mage? What I'm going to ask is, what is the most difficult thing about working on Mage? As a developer, as a writer, what is the most challenging part of that process? To anyone who wants to answer that question, you can unmute yourself. Oh, Steffi is up to the plate.
1: Yep. Um, I'd say... it's both challenging but also something that i really like about mage it's that all these traditions and crafts um are right you know they each have their own world view of how reality really is and in order to treat the material respectfully you have to assume that they are right reality does work this way but so are the other people who have a completely different view they are also right Mm. and and um Because if you you go into it thinking, oh, it's really this, which means everybody else is wrong, then the game doesn't work. So you have all these different crafts and traditions, and you've got the technocracy and their worldview, all of them, they are correct, even if they are directly opposing each other. Um, And that's actually one of the things that I like best about Mage, but it can be um, challenging to put your own conceptions aside and not go, oh, my God, these fuckheads have to be wrong. No, they are right
0: obviously some some mages think they're more right than others i well i suppose my question then is do you when you play mage or when you write mage uh, do you take the view that most mages are aware and understand that their peers in other traditions in other crafts can alter reality just as easily that that basically i may be right but everyone else is right too? Or do you think that it makes more sense to write from the perspective of I'm right and everyone else is wrong?
1: Yeah, no, in-game they definitely think that all these other assholes are wrong. Um, because obviously if, if you're a verbena witch, then you're not going to like the Celestial Chorus. Um, mm. And does that is that the same as thinking their worldview is, well, morally wrong, yes, Um But yes, I would say that in character, they probably think that they have the one true, you know, the one that they they are the one true vision who sees the universe as it really is. And all of these other idiots are wrong. Yeah. Um, But out of character, you have to treat it as no, they are all right, because reality is what we shape it to be in Mage, which means all of them are right.
0: Well, that's a wonderful answer. And uh, so I'm going to direct that same question about challenges to, to Chris now. Uh, I And I say this, it's a bit of a loaded question, because I know <laughs> M20 Victorian age went through a lot of uh, iterations before mm-hmm. you and uh, Ian A.A. A. Watson kind of clamped it down and said, okay, well, here's where we're going to go. What did you find the mo- largest challenges to be. Well, um, a bit like uh,
2: what Steffi said in terms of something that is a strength to the game as well as a challenge from a developing point of view is uh, something I found, especially with Victorian Mage, positioned as it is at this sort of fulcrum period historically. Um, Mage the Ascension has a lot, if you know, a lot of everything. It has a lot of characters, it has a lot of history, it has a lot of depth as a setting established over you know the the past couple of decades. And that means that uh, on the plus side, you get a setting that's very rich, uh, that has all these details to really engage uh, fans of the setting and people playing or running it. There's a lot to draw on. Obviously, from a development point of view, that makes it quite complex to make sure everything's nailed down correctly, to make sure that the book is, if you like, correct. It's not making any crazy statements that are just completely out of line with anything else, unless they're specifically things you are intending to do. I was very lucky. With Victorian Mage that I had a lot of uh, great writers, a lot of writers are really familiar with the setting, so they knew their stuff, Uh, they knew what they were talking about when they were weaving together elements of the overarching uh, story of uh, Mage the Ascension, uh, historically and and things yet to come. but yeah, keeping sort of keeping everything lined up, uh, keeping all everything straight, uh, so it, it actually makes some sense within the setting. For a book that's such a wide scope as Victorian Mage, something that covers you know the better part of a century of events, that was definitely for me the, the biggest challenge working on on Victorian Mage.
0: Well, I'm going to uh, flip it over and ask. In that case, what would you say is the most rewarding part of working on Victorian Mage? <laughs> But I
2: suppose flipping the answer around is, is when it actually all comes together and makes a coherent, you know, end result. When you're trying to interleave all these different threads of the game, setting, history, um, you always feel very aware that, you know, when it, when when it's being put together and everything's up in the air, it looks like a bit of a tangled mess of spaghetti, if you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, so when it then comes together in the final draft into something coherent that, that is portraying a coherent picture of the era and of the various factions of uh, Awakened mages acting in that era, that's satisfying at the end to see it, it, the, the, the complete picture actually resolving into something that makes sense, that has its own depth for, for players to draw on, and, and for storytellers to draw on, and contributes its own part in the overall puzzle of Mage of the Ascension's story, history, uh, and events.
0: Okay. And, uh, so going to the third guest, uh, do you remember the FMV game seventh guest? That was, uh, an experience. wasn't necessarily a good one, but the third guest in this case, uh, Hiromi, what about you then challenges and rewards?
3: Uh, I think for me, the challenges specific to mage, uh, would be sort of managing the historiography of, mm. uh, mage because, uh, naturally had, uh, several iterations of history and it, because, uh, the history is sort of ever expanding and ever, uh, revising itself. It's impossible to say that any one thing is like the definitive version, uh, unless, unless it's the one that you're working on and you're like, clearly I'm right. So yeah. this is the definitive version uh, up until someone else touches it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that was one of the things that um, was especially uh, thorny to me while working on uh, Lore of the Traditions, because uh, I I could be wrong here, but I think I'm the first Persian person of Asian descent to specifically work on the Kashiana. Uh, and I'm certainly the the first person who noticed that, uh, the Chinese that was used was in at least three different Chinese languages, uh, which is, uh, challenging. So that that's part of like the big thing that, uh, I, I worked with, uh, for that thing was to just sort of go, okay, well. I should pick one. I'm going to pick Mandarin uh using the Pinyin uh writing system because it's the most widespread and I can cover the most people with it even though I know that that carries its own baggage cuz like that the various Chinese languages are political. All languages are political, but like uh the Chinese government would really love it if Mandarin was the only Chinese language, uh, which uh, is an impossibility. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like for for the purpose of clarity, like something has to happen. Uh, there, a choice has to be made. Uh, and so that's that's what I ended up doing. Um, and at the same time, there's just like all this history um, and all these versions of history. And some of them make sense within the context of Asia, and some of them don't. Uh, I did a similar thing uh, with the five elemental dragons of the Technocracy, uh, because they're very weird. (laughs) Uh, And they they had their own historical problems uh, that uh, I addressed in Technocracy Reloaded, uh, and to a lesser extent in Victorian Mage. Uh, yeah. So, like those, it, it's always a matter of okay. Well, what, what canon exists, and how authoritative is that, and can it be improved?
0: Well, it, it, it's it's an interesting quandary because we look back now on a lot of uh, the original White Wolf's creations of the '90s, and of course, we wince. Uh, it, to put it mildly, and that's uh, it can become a popular thing to drop on a company of a time uh, creating something that through today's more enlightened lens we see as offensive uh, or frankly lazy. And, uh, oh, I, yeah, think, and- I, th- I think on occasion that's an absolutely fair take, um, sometimes, well, more often than not, uh, but also it behooves us to do what we can to improve it or replace it and not not necessarily do so in, we don't always have to do so in a way that makes sense within the setting. Sometimes it is enough to just make it better. And if there's a fan that is particularly clamoring for the 1993 representation of X, and they say why isn't this here anymore, then we can explain it to them. Uh, But we don't have to have it in-game make sense why a, uh, well, I guess something like the Quai Jin uh, in Vampire are a big example of this. or, 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 Or indeed, or the Asomites in Vampire, who of course stuck around for longer, or were around for longer, why certain terms, terminology, stereotypes... And so on just don't fit in today's games. Um, if if your table particularly wants to use them, then those books where they appeared are still there. And uh, if your group wants to do that, and you you've asked them, then all power to them. But we certainly don't have to present it in our work.
3: Uh, and and to be fair, I'm not uh, I'm not meaning to look back at. Uh, previous editions authors and go ah fuck you guys yeah uh, I'm 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 friends with uh not a huge number of them but an amount of them and they did the best they could with the fact that the internet really didn't exist and libraries had a limited amount of things uh, and uh, several of those resources were uh, definitely outdated uh, it's it's one of the reasons why I changed the transliteration of uh. X uh, uh the uh, old uh, Primus uh, for the Akashiana, uh because that transliteration, uh, that's that system that it was written in in previous editions, it stopped getting used around the 80s, um, which means that whatever source that uh, that writer was drawing from uh, was dated mm. uh, and that's not it's not their fault. It's just they did the best they had with the resources available at the time, uh, yeah. and now we have better resources. Uh, so
0: so so uh, likewise, what, what would you say is the most rewarding part of working on Mage? Uh, I really enjoy uh, the aspect of being able
3: to get inside the head of mages and think about what would they use magic for in the situations that they present themselves in? Mm. Uh this generally manifests uh in my writing or in general with weird wonders and, and such. So weird what <laughs> so getting to actually develop weird wonders was tons of fun for me. Uh at the same time there's stuff like um uh technocracy reloaded and um uh, rich bastards uh, guide to magic, uh, because I I get to think. Okay, what would a rich bastard do? And most of us have like the general idea. Okay, they're they're rich and they're assholes, so they'll do something. But if they're at the absolute pinnacle of wealth and bastard, they would just go ahead and not only create something or have something created for them that enriches them, but actively, uh, impoverishes everyone else, which is mm-hmm. where, uh, the masterpiece came from, which is, uh, a collage made up of basically every most expensive piece of art that you could name just the actual originals of those cut up into pieces and arranged into a collage. The whole thing costs billions of dollars uh, just in raw materials. Uh, And it is probably one of the favorite, my most favorite things that I've made for Mage, because it is the most rich bastardy thing that you could possibly do. Except for the second half of that, which is you have all of this incredibly precious uh, masterpieces of art from around the world. So what do you do? You use it as a middle product to refine cocaine. Because <laughs> why, why not have cocaine that has been purified slash tainted by the world's most expensive pieces of art? Just go ahead and snort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just go ahead and snort uh, the Mona Lisa. You can You can do it. You're a rich bastard. Uh I mean, I've done things that are much more
0: useful, uh, but that is by far
3: the most flavorful thing that I've introduced to it, mage.
0: You, you can set an entire chronicle around that, especially the theft of something like that. Uh, that you know, you can imagine the mage heist that would be set around a um, uh, well, a theoretical, ostensible work of art such as that. Uh, it brings to mind those sort of gold-plated steaks that get served in some restaurants, uh, where they are designed for a specific market. Despite the facts, uh, u- useless uh, tidbit of information, listeners. The reason uh, silver cutlery uh, is was always a thing in stately homes, despite the fact silver is a less valuable metal than gold, is because gold is one of the is a metal that Uh, has a very strong flavor and it removes the flavor of whatever you're eating on it so in other words if you were to use a gold fork to pierce your piece of meat you wouldn't be tasting the meat you'd be tasting the gold and gold doesn't taste nice so when these rich people are putting their gold flakes over ribeye steak they are just tasting gold flakes, and I guess having very colourful poos. Um, but <laughs> other than that, other than that, uh, one thing uh, I wanted to talk about with Steffi is uh, about the disparate alliance because I am a big fan of the bloodlines. I know you are in Vampire as well. Mm. We, both of us have actually done a fair amount of work on some interesting bloodlines mm. for Vampire over the years and uh, I guess uh, it's a a bit of a broad question but how do you make a fringe group in a wide setting like Mage as appealing to play or as a focal point of a game uh, without I guess losing the flavor of the game
1: Um, well because I think in this being fringe and small is a feature not a bug because mm. um, <clears throat> uh, uh, the, the the crafts obviously they are involved in the ascension war though not all of them acknowledge them and not all of them realize it but they are struggling for survival and if you're a group of mages that by default means you are now part of the ascension war um, um, but what i love about them is um, that they that they are small it's it's not you don't have this huge council of nine looking down at you, like the disparate alliance can barely make up their mind on a good day. Um, (laughs) So you get a lot of freedom on what to do. You get a lot of, um, there's a a big sense of we have to work together. So when when those assholes and the traditions or the technocracy ask, we are a united front. Mm. And then the moment those people turn away, it's like, oh my God, why am I working with you? and um and that is the traditions have that too but it's stronger because in the traditions you at least have like the overarching council of nine you know giving edicts down and in a disparate alliance it's just like um so some dude in los angeles said that we're working together but we are in berlin and um, i i never met the dude in los angeles so i guess we can give this a go but it might not work so there's a lot of you can you can very you can customize it a lot their reactions to each other and um how much a part of the ascension war they want to be uh like do you want to just focus on a street level game where they are literally fighting for you know just staying relevant and connecting with their own mortal traditions because a lot of these crafts are um they they they're not religious but some of them connect to Uh, like the hollow ones are a famous example famous example they connect to goth culture um so they would try to work together with the local goth culture to you know make themselves a bit more comfortable in life and um and there are a lot of uh, there are several you know uh, uh african traditional religions uh in there and um i completely lost my train of thought but yeah, the, the smallness <laughs> to me is, is I don't know, it makes it more personal and more what you're doing here in Berlin counts. It, it feels more immediate to me, but that's also because I've always loved street-level games. I remember my own mage campaign, I used to love it when we were playing in the real world, and then the moment somebody came up with, um, oh yeah, um, the Horizon said that we need to do this because the Ascension Warrior did that, and I was like, I've never met those dudes. Mm. Um, so so that's what we're trying to do with the with the with the forbidden and forgotten crafts. We're trying to make it small. We're trying to make it personal. It's all about your community, the one that you are building with your fellow crafts, but also with um, with the mortals around you. It's ah, it's about community. and I, I like that as so that would be my very rambling answer.
0: No, no, I, I appreciate the rambling answer because it brings to mind a lot of a lot of the reasons I enjoy both working on things like bloodlines and and playing them. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, an oft-cited criticism in Facebook groups and whatnot that if you want to play a Sullivacarti or if you want to play a Kia Seed or a um well who knows what uh, that you are playing a snowflake character you're playing a, uh, a a special twinkie character and my retort to that is good because as a player, I want to play a character that is interesting, that is special, that stands out, that isn't just joining the ranks shoulder to shoulder with everybody else. And the appeal of playing someone on the fringe of society means I have a lot more opportunities for for, for clashes, uh, whether it's physical or social. It, it provides challenges to play through. And uh, I mean, I've had a look at, of course, the text that's um, that already exists for your book, Steffi. And it's it's already looking fantastic because we have so many of these different voices from so many different cultures, groups that, as you say, wouldn't wouldn't work together if they had a choice. There's very little reason for uh, an Ungoma and salificati to just walk up to each other shake each other by the hand and say you know all right so how how is business today but when you are on the when you're forced to the outside by the traditions then and and the technocracy at that and the world around you you end up looking for allies in strange places
1: yeah exactly like if the relationship between these people in this city works it's not because there's a template handed down by the council of nine it's because these five people are making it work with the five of them and Mm. um yeah I, i love that and and also they have because they are not necessarily they are trying to stay standing which obviously means you have to survive the technocracy but there isn't the historical antagonism there is in some craft because the technocracy wiped all of them out depending on which future fate you're going with but some of them also genuinely don't like the council of nine because they did the same at some point you know we were like where where them where they were like you're you're, you're all part of uh, the order of hermes now oh, okay um so so they they have that room to you know they don't like the technocracy but if the five of these people can make it work, maybe they can also make it work with that one technocrat who isn't that bad.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, so, Chris, I've got a bit of an exercise for you now as part of the roundtable. I know, you weren't expecting this, were you? Uh, so I've Rose, got a, It's going to be a
2: test. Uh,
0: well, I wouldn't say a test. More of a... <laughs> we'll call it a trial, like Hercules. Um <laughs> Uh, so obviously you worked on Victorian Mage, mm. and that's a big old book with a lot mm. of uh, a lot of plot threads in. But one of the most common complaints I hear about these big games like the World of Darkness ones is how do I access it? Uh, mm. What how do I get into a, a historical setting about which I may know little? How about that for a structured sentence? And how do I get into a game with such a hefty meta plot? You've got two very heavy elements there that could prove daunting to the casual role player if there, such a thing exists. So how do you appeal to, to someone who wants to get into Mage with the book you co-developed?
2: Yeah, so you're right on on the one hand that there's a lot and therefore um, choosing trying to figure out which end of the pool is the shallow end dip your Toes in, in the first place and which end is the one filled with sharks is, is a bit you know challenging to start <laughs> off with but I think my, my my general advice for a lot of those kind of situations which also applies to other games set in um, real world derived settings uh, is really start with something familiar um you know i obviously i can't speak for someone who's literally lived under a rock for their whole life and has no exposure to popular culture but for a lot of us for example we're going to have uh pop culture representations for for the areas we've lived in for most of our lives uh relating to the era of the victorian age you know so in the uk there's a lot of stuff about uh, victorian era elements um i think the same is probably true in the u.s um uh, where obviously a lot of players can come from but the, but more worldwide you know i think more and more especially uh, we see more and more community cultures being willing to create to say tell their own stories about their experiences in the era especially with colonialism and imperialism as it was so the starting point for me really is, is going to be it's going to vary from group to group into specifics but it is start with what you're familiar with um from your communities uh, and the culture you're exposed to, and, and the pop culture you're exposed to, um, there's nothing wrong in a game in a book that literally spans the world. There is nothing wrong with saying, "Oh, you know, we live in the UK, so we're going to set our our game in a kind of in, in Victorian England." It, it's you're not missing anything inherently by doing that. Um, so, by starting your game, by starting your ideas in somewhere familiar, you then can expand out. As you feel comfortable doing so, and as a game may take it take you in different directions and twists and turns, um, so yeah, start start from somewhere that is familiar. I think is the, the important step, rather than there being a very specific game element to hook off. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. um, because if I say if 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 we said something like oh, but there's this very specific plot in this specific area that's going to be great for starting groups, the problem is you know the. The, if you like, the intimidation element of, oh, but I don't know what that was like very much. I don't know who, much about that culture or that country is always going to be there. So I think really just taking it into account of who's sitting at the table is probably the best first step
0: for that. Okay, okay. I, I think that's sound advice. And I'm going to flip the trial to Hiromi because on the other side of that, because I think you raised a very valuable point there, about um, sticking to the familiar, let's talk about some of the things that Hiromi dealt with in uh, Weird Wonders and Revolutionary Magic, because Revolutionary Magic takes you to various parts of the world. And so, my question to you, Hiromi, as well as talking a little about what is in that book, is how do you, and in fact I'll provide a little more context, there are some fantastic games out there, Zhang uh, Shi, Coyote, and Crow. Uh, that these are games that aren't necessarily Bionic's Path. Uh, we do this a lot with our Dark Eras books, that deal with geographic regions, historical eras about which the majority block of role players have not experienced and have very little knowledge. So how do you present that information and how do you encourage people to take I guess a risk of playing in this world that they know very little about in a sensitive but also fun way it's a big question uh, that I'm aiming at you mostly because of the revolutionary magic so <laughs> good luck with <for> the <laughs> answer uh, well
3: well um... Fortunately, uh, I uh, in in one of my pre one of my many previous careers, uh, I was a teacher, uh, adjunct professor, uh, and so like uh, one of the things that is kind of bit like drummed into me uh, during my first master's degree was that. When you're teaching, things need to be scaffolded. Uh, scaffolding, in this case, is uh, both a verb and a metaphor for uh, providing useful things that enable people to understand what you're trying to get across. And this this works particularly in teaching because you're always trying to teach people uh, new concepts because that's that that's how education works. Uh, but at the same time. Uh, now that I work uh, with uh, tabletop RPGs and fiction, the the thing there is to give people something that they can grasp onto, some sort of uh, touchstone. And so one of the things there with uh, revolutions um, as well as uh, bizarre tales um, was to go, okay, so this is a specific setting. This is uh, someplace that you're not, Particularly familiar with, and that's okay. Uh, here's a quick rundown of things that are happening in there, which both contextualize the major changes that are occurring in this area because it's it's revolutions. It's it's all about uh, giant social changes and upheaval. So it contextualizes what's going on, uh, and then zooms in a bit to give you some specific uh events that are happening and what you as a player group can do in that uh in that uh particular uh social change and you don't have to do it you can take uh what uh we wrote and use it as a jumping off point you can decide well we don't want to participate in the uh, Satsuma rebellion we we want to do something uh over here or uh why am I blanking on why am I oh wait now I know I am blanking on things because I have like uh over a hundred plot seeds uh between the <laughs> two books <laughs> um but like that's that's kind of my uh go-to answer but both uh, externally providing it to you right now through my voice, as well as, uh, what I do with my work. It's this, it's that people need something to latch onto and like, it's, it's okay. If I'm talking about a culture that you have no experience with, you've never met anyone who speaks language. It like that, that's fine. Uh, you, you don't have to, uh, but if you have a decent understanding, uh, just based off of like what uh is presented in the text then you're like okay onmyoji is basically getting wrecked because of the uh, Meiji Restoration. Uh okay. Well, what sides do I want to be on that? Do would, would I like to be <laughs> a a former uh court uh Seer, I guess, is a decent English translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, would would I like to be one of them who's now kind of not just out of a job because the shogunate was screwing them over too, but now actively being screwed over because uh, as uh, Japan westernizes, they have even less of a foothold, uh, especially as um, the, the fact that the Onmyoji uh, were uh, they they practice a divinatory art, and this this is like this is actual history. Uh, they they practice a divinatory art uh, that descends kind more or less directly uh, from Chinese arts, uh, and because it's not like um, from Japan when there was a resurgence in Japanese nationalism during the beginning of the Meiji era. They they became outsiders just like everyone else. <laughs> so like uh the shogun uh got dropkicked, the On got got dropkicked. There was like a lot of groups that were just fell out of favor because they were no longer popular. They were no longer uh Japanese enough, which is kind of horrific uh it it helped japan in many ways and it hurt japan in a lot of other ways and the neat thing from a game perspective is that that is a very uh volatile and rich area of japanese history and there's a good chunk of it presented uh more than i actually asked for but the writer for it went ham and i'm I'm for it so
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I think that that is an incredible answer as well the idea you know it, it makes perfect sense that yeah if you want to set a game in a time or a place that you are not familiar with much as Chris was saying as well you find something that's familiar first of all you find a hook and you provide that context and with any luck that gives you an entryway a door through which you can Enter into this world, and things won't seem so, I guess, alien if you want. Uh, and from there, I guess you build from a local, uh, a local point through to something that's mm-hmm. slightly more holistic. And and can hopefully introduce the different elements of culture and uh, and conflict that the players may not have been aware of, uh, which forces them to make choices in character, which obviously leads to good role play, especially when things like moral choice comes into, mm. into the situation. Uh, so we've, with 10 minutes left, I have an exercise for the group. And I don't mean to sound too daunting, but it's something I've done with guests in the past, not necessarily on this sh- on this show, but on others. Which is a form of brainstorm. When you've got multiple fantastic creators uh, who have all contributed to the same game. You can get ideas from all of them and hopefully make a semblance of what could be an intriguing plot or a chaotic, sprawling mess that would never stand up to a first draft scrutiny. So let's see what we end up with in this case. So I'm going to pick on each person to come up with a different element of the plot. And from elements, I would say we've got character. So in this case, I think because of the the guests we've got here, we're going to go for crafts. We're going to have some crafts, one to three different crafts as character, and Steffi can nominate that. We will have. Uh, we're going to set it in the Victorian age because uh, we've got two Victorian age authors here, uh, so we will also go for geographical geographical location uh, in the nineteenth century. I think uh, Hiromi can choose that and can add a let's think no I think uh, Hiromi right now can just go for the geographical area, uh, area and Chris can go for what the source of conflict is, whatever it happens to be, whether it's existential, whether it's internal, whether it's at a tradition level, whether whatever. So we'll start off we'll start off Steffi. Uh, with picking a cra- up to three different crafts, and they're either central, or they're protagonists, or they're antagonists, they're supporting characters. You tell me what role they are playing in this game.
1: Um. Okay. So <clears throat> let me see. For a Victoria Victorian era, we're going to start with a um hidden order of the Knights Templar. A solificati which is um alchemists let's just shorthand it as alchemists mm-hmm. and the taftani which are um, middle eastern mages who explicitly do vulgar magic because they think that is how you break the lie that is conventional reality and they walk into a bar
0: they walk into a bar that's always a wonderful setup for a game uh, <laughs> never been used before so taftani Uh, So yes, we have Taftani, Salificati, and Knights Templar Three three mages walk into a bar And uh, Hiromi, where is this bar? Uh, Originally I was going to say west coast
3: of uh, Mexico But with that group, uh, (laughs) it seems like maybe somewhere along the Suez Canal Is probably a better bet Although, depending on when in the 19th century it is, the Suez Canal might not exist.
0: Let's say it's during
3: the construction of the Suez Canal. Hey, then then everyone's drinking, because those those workers are putting in way more hours than anyone should really
0: do. Absolutely. Okay. So, they're in the Suez Canal, and Chris, what is the source of conflict that is going to drive this plot? Oh, so, uh, I mean, the, uh, fun, the fun plot I,
2: uh, we put into um, the Victorian Mage book itself, uh, The Year of the Suez Canal, was uh, on people or mages basically betting uh, on ships going back and forth the speeds uh, and using magic to meddle with it. So uh, maybe these mages have been engaged in shenanigans relating to uh, the passage of vessels back and forth, and there's been a bet or the like uh, that may have gone sour.
0: And it's resulted in a ship getting stuck horizontally in the sewers canal. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, so. <laughs> very topical. Uh, okay, so that is our plot for our mage game. And I guess my final question to the group is, are these three mages going to be our protagonists? Or are they going to be antagonists in the sense that their meddling has caused this awful um, holdup of either the construction of the sewers or... The or basically a log jam in the sewers. How do, how do we see them, Stuffy? Do you think they're going to be protagonists or antagonists?
1: So uh, the Tuftani and the Solificati are going to be our protagonists because the Tuftani don't give a shit about vulgar magic, so they would be all like hovering the ships. And Solificati in a bar, that's their jam. They love um, perception-altering substances. Mm-hmm. But and then the Knights Templar will be like the straight guy who's like, you, you can't you you can't do that. <laughs> um, so he could he could be either the NPC or an antagonist or the protagonist who is trying to get these two, you know, flamboyant mages to tone it down.
0: All right then. Okay. Well, that means we've got a scenario. If anyone listening wants to create that for the Storytellers Vault, uh, do let us know and provide us with the credit. Uh, mostly, uh, these three. Uh, you can leave me off. Um. Alternatively, if anyone here in this uh, call wants to make a scenario, give me a shout based on that. And you never know, listeners of the Onyx podcast will eat that stuff up. Just see how well they responded that they came from the snake-filled submarine, which was only spawned based on a conversation we had on here. So we only have a few minutes left. So now is a very good opportunity for you, my wonderful guests, who I am so appreciative of, uh, to do a bit of self-promotion along with promotion of any other projects you happen to be working on and are excited about. Uh, let's go to Hiromi first. Uh, Hiromi, what what are you working on right now? What would you like to tell the people? Uh, so, firstly,
3: I, I actually wanted to say this uh, earlier, but you were on a cruel roll, so I didn't want to screw with it. But uh, <laughs> one thing that I wanted to like direct to players, especially people who are uh, apprehensive about playing uh especially historically set uh, uh, games in uh, cultures that they're not familiar with uh, is that with the, the information that's provided in the books uh, you have a good jumping off point and it's okay. If you get some of the details wrong because the people at the time in those places were getting it wrong too. Like yeah. it pre information age, people were fucking up left and right Uh Yes, uh, like now we can look back at them and go, oh, no, this is what was going on. But at the ground level, people didn't know shit. Uh, so with with actual stuff to plug, uh, Cthulhu Awakens uh, by Green Ronin is coming out, or rather is going to Kickstarter in like, I don't know, two, three weeks. Uh, it covers similar ground, as um, Masks of the Mythos and Whispers in Darkness, uh, but it is a complete standalone game. Uh, not at all, not at all related to Scion. It is a different way of looking at Lovecraft work and going, "Wow, there's a lot of racist stuff in here that just needs to get the fuck out," uh, and that's fantastic. Um, I uh, I wrote a lot of stuff for that uh, coming out in about two weeks. Is Magic: The Gathering, uh, Kamigawa Neon Destiny. Uh, I was a cultural consultant on that, along with uh, James Mendez hode uh, and it—it's a real cool setting. We we had a lot of fun with it, and it looks great. And I'm looking forward to getting a crap ton of cards in my hands that <laughs> I named. <laughs>
0: And if people want to find you online, Hiromi, to talk about any of your projects or hire you for any more books, because I'm sure you have the capacity to take on even more assignments, <laughs> where would they go? Uh, so my,
3: my website, uh, hiromicota.com, h-i-r-o-m-i-c-o-t-a.com uh also uh twitter at hitomicoda.com uh those are probably the easiest two places for folks to get in touch with me uh if they don't already know me that is
0: perfect and uh, so likewise self-promote and uh, where can we find you chris oh well you can
2: uh, find me on twitter at Akrasatarim, uh, and on forums and discords here and yonder um in terms of self promo, uh, I'm at one of those stages where you know a lot of things are uh, in progress uh, in the tube, but not necessarily going to come out anytime immediately. Uh, the last thing I worked on that's just come out is Prometheus Unbound for Trinity Continuum Eon, which is a book of the Psi Orders uh, for the setting, which we went de- delved, in, de- delved into in greater depth. Uh, I wrote some of that; that's just come out um i'm working on developing a book for aberrant with great power a book about super teams and sort of superheroic aspects in the aberrant setting but that is obviously still mid-development uh something in mind that is going to be coming out soon is the uh my first novella length published work meridian which is a tie-in for uh trinity to continue eon it's uh one of the kickstarter goals from the original trinity continuum Kickstarter. Uh, it is a uh, story uh, set in the uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland of France, as it is in Eon, and uh, delving into all sorts of shenanigans uh, and horror there. And that is, I think, in the final stages of its proofing and print-on-demand uh stuff. So that's going to be out pretty soon, I believe. Um, uh, I think that's it from me for now.
0: Okay, and uh, last but by no means least, Steffi. How about yourself?
1: Okay, so things you should check out. Um, I know if you're listening to this, you're a World of Darkness fan, but you should check out Legend Law. Like I said, it's a fantasy game, but because you play yourself, it does have that element of realism where you're like, okay, but I can't just kill the orc. He lives here, and I would not invade a person's house and then steal his stuff and then kill him. That is weird. <clears throat> so... um. You should check that out it's it's a really cool game and it's also about on path and um you should have over to the angry hamster publishing website not only does it have a fantastic name with an animal we all love animals um but like i said we're currently working on a new adventure a- a- adventure path for which and while you wait for that you can play afterlife wandering souls which won an indie groundbreaker award for setting which is all about you died And you went to the afterlife, but it's the wrong afterlife. And now you have to travel around and find your true ending. Um, It's actually a really positive and upbeat game, despite the fact that it starts with you died. And as for where people can find me, the easiest thing is if you head over to my Twitter. That is 100 things I love. And 100 is just the number, 100. And then you can find my link tree, and that has everything else in it.
0: And can you name five of the 100 things you love?
1: Um, Cats, rats, hamsters, snakes, and horses.
0: I love horses, at most of all, out of those five. But, you know, I I don't hold it against the other four. Anyway uh thank you very much all three of my fantastic guests you have all been wonderful and have all been fighting against plagues technological and otherwise and it's it's been so fantastic to have you on here for the first mage round table anyone who's looking for me online can find me on matthewdawkins.com on twitter at dawkins mp on the onyx bath discord just look for matthew dawkins Ask us about Mage of the Ascension on there. Most of us dip into Discord pretty regularly, and we do have a Mage of the Ascension dedicated channel. If you haven't backed Lore of the Traditions yet on Kickstarter, please do so. The more backing we get, the more stretch goals we will unlock. And all in all, thank you very much for listening. Many worlds, one podcast.